Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and this is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount. On this show, we're getting to the bottom of what still holds women back from women who are beating the odds. We saw this interesting collision between feminist politics and capitalism, and we found the girl boss. And I trace this from, you know, white suffragettes in the United States who also had very similar outlooks in terms of optimizing the individual as opposed to changing the system and structures that really marginalized women. Here to help me introduce this week's episode is my producer, Sari Soffer. Hi, Jen. Super excited for this episode because it's one we've been talking about since last summer when we saw so many women business leaders pushed out of their companies over accusations that they mistreated women of color or created toxic workplaces. So we are now going to finally discuss the girl boss, who she is, what she's come to represent, and if her recent downfall is merited or just another form of misogyny. Or if it's all just more complicated than that. Exactly. And it's interesting timing now because one of the earliest women traceable to the girl boss era, Elizabeth Holmes, is on trial. Yeah. She was once coined the youngest self-made woman billionaire for founding the blood testing startup Theranos, but is now charged with criminal fraud because her company did not live up to its promises and had some pretty serious implications for people who use their blood testing system. Yeah. And I mean, even after all that, there were still Holmes super fans outside the courtroom wearing her quintessential black turtleneck. I don't know if you saw that, but it's because these girl bosses really do mean something to aspirational women, which is why this conversation is so complex. You know, Holmes is like at one extreme of the, of the spectrum, but then you have women like the Away Luggage founder yep. and Audrey Gelman, who co-founded mm-hmm. the co-working space, uh, The Wing and others that we'll, that we'll get into. Definitely. And one of our guests today is Lee Stein, who covered those reckonings in real time. Last year, she published a satirical novel about two caricature women founders called Self Care. And in summer 2020, she wrote a viral article called The End of the Girl Boss is Here and has since been the go-to when discussing the subject. I've seen her quoted in many articles. Um, But in her article, she points out that most, if not all, of these girl bosses were white women who, quote, sat at the unique intersection of oppression and privilege, end quote. And that's where our second guest has done much of her writing on this subject. Koa Beck wrote a book called White Feminism, which talks about the brand of feminism that focuses on individual power rather than the collective. That was something she experienced herself when she worked at women's media companies, including Marie Claire and Vogue, that were obsessed with covering the girl boss in the early 2010s. There's a lot that's colliding here. So Mm -hmm. I'm really excited to have this conversation with the two of them because 
they both come at this topic from unique perspectives and can show the forces that led to the girl boss's appeal and downfall. And then we have to talk about cancel culture because, yeah, uh, yeah tricky, super tricky, <laughs> but I believe there has to be a way to hold these women accountable that's not just kicking them out of businesses they created and erasing them altogether. So let's get into it. Lee Stein and Koa Beck, welcome to Just Something About Her. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for the invitation, Jennifer. You know, this podcast is called Just Something About Her, based off of my experience working for Hillary Clinton, where there was just something about her people didn't like. But the other big realization I had really late in the process was, oh, what we've been doing is trying to prove that Hillary can do the job the way it's always been done, which is the way a man has always done it and forcing her into some sort of like ill-fitting suit. And that rather than paving a new way for women, maybe what we were doing, and I think, you know, what I have been doing my own career is sort of perpetuating these power systems. Mm -hmm. The term girl boss, I think is sort of like born out of the same failed premise. When I read both of what you all have written, there was just like all sorts of light bulbs going off that I really want to delve into today. So Lee, tell me some of the very real societal factors you think that made this notion of the girl boss so appealing to women in the like 2010s and like how you define that term. Sure. So Sophia Amoruso, who was the founder of Nasty Gal, which was like an e-commerce clothing website, she published a book called Hashtag Girl Boss. So the term that we use today, I only hear it used among my peers, like ironically, like I don't hear people using it sincerely <laughs> right. anymore. It's like a joke, but it came from Sophia Amoruso. And this was around the time of 2014 when Sheryl Sandberg's book Lean In became so popular. So we were seeing this kind of rising tide of this kind of self-empowerment feminism. Mm-hmm. And Sheryl Sandberg's a Gen Xer, but Girl Boss is like the millennial version of this because it comes from millennial hustle culture. It comes from job scarcity and precarity. A lot of millennials feel like they're in the gig economy for life. They have to hustle. And instead of following Sheryl Sandberg's lead and working their way up the corporate career ladder, the Girl Boss said, I'm going to start my own thing. And so I think there's something really inspiring about that and empowering about that. But what happened was these girl boss founders, when they didn't live up to their ideals, when they were less than ethical or virtuous in the workplace, they were held to account by their employees, by their customers. And so last summer, we saw this cascading domino effect of the fall of the girl boss. Many female founders were publicly disgraced last summer. So I think it's really interesting. And I also have followed how this movement has coincided with a rise in feminist politics and social justice activism, because I know Koa has written about this turning point moment when Beyonce stood in front of the feminist sign. Was that in 2014 also? 2014, yes. But like a few months before that, like Beyonce had given an interview for some women's magazine where she said she doesn't identify as the term feminist. Mm -hmm. So there was this interesting turning point moment from female celebrities shying away from the label feminist and all the negative connotations from the 90s, you know, hairy armpits, et cetera, to leveraging that and to marketing that. And so we saw this interesting collision between feminist politics and capitalism, and we found the girl boss. Koa, I'm interested in, you know, why you thought that Beyonce moment was so important, sort of the process of sanitizing and 
depoliticizing feminism in the 2010s Mm -hmm. and maybe, you know, define white feminism for us. Happily. And I also wanted to say, Lee, it's so nice to meet you. I so enjoyed your book, Self-Care. Thank you. I'm so glad to bring you two together. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I really enjoyed your novel. So it's really nice to be able to share the space with you. So I define white feminism as a very specific approach towards achieving gender equality that pulls considerably from white supremacy, from a very individualistic sensibility about women's rights, but also from imperialism, from capitalism, a number of other isms. But its biggest hallmark is that it positions the individual as the seeker and achiever of women's rights, and that as a feminist, you should be very individually focused. I think it's worth pointing that out very early and that white feminism is not the dominant conversation on women's rights. However, the practice positions itself as the dominant discourse on women's rights. So that's worth pointing out. In terms of the anecdote you cited, Mm -hmm. what Lee was just talking about, about the Beyonce moment, about the you know, Sophia Girlboss moment, where it's like, there was a very pivotal shift in terms of like, oh, now we can put feminism in a headline. Having said that, something that I became very attuned to in my career is that while that was very exciting, especially given, you know, my politics and things that I like to cover, the community I come from, I started to notice in real time, 2014, 2015, 2016, that, you know, when I said the word feminist and when a lot of my feminist identified, you know, managers and colleagues use the term feminist, we were talking about very different things. You know, I'm trying to talk about like housing crisis, poor women being able to afford diapers, and they want me to cover mm-hmm. like mompreneurs and, you know, like women making a lot of money for themselves. Right. Usually right. at the expense of low-income women, women of color, And so it was a real divide, but also like something that, you know, was very perplexing to me in real time. Mm -hmm. A piece of analysis that I explore throughout my book is that one of the things that has made white feminism as an ideology and a practice so enduring and, you know, keeps adapting with, you know, like some people call them waves of feminism or, you know, generationally, is that white feminism as a practice doesn't challenge institutions. It doesn't challenge power. Yes. It exports this individual skill set that much like you said, Jennifer, at the top of this conversation, it's like a skill set that women are supposed to take on to therefore adapt. And, you know, it's worth pointing out for a lot of women and non-binary people, you know, that skill set isn't even available to them. And it can really minimize, you know, what are intensely structural barriers, right? Like if you're very individually focused, then there is no structure. And I trace this from, you know, what some people quantify now as fourth wave white feminism, although it's a very debated term in terms of fourth wave, back through the white suffragettes in the United States, who also had very similar outlooks in terms of optimizing the individual as opposed to changing the system and structures that really marginalized women. One thing that's, I think, always true is there's tension and conflict in it. I mean, I remember, you know, y'all talked about this one Beyonce example from 2014, but I also was with Hillary in 2016 in Cleveland when Beyonce did a concert for us. And I was backstage watching it with Hillary and flash on the screen behind Beyonce was the quote from Hillary was, I didn't stay home and baked cookies. And Hillary was like, oh no, (laughs) like it's back again. And I was like, no, this is good. This is like, Her generation, the millennial generation is owning that 
in a way that you couldn't. But then, of course, embedded in an Iden Stay Home Baked Cookies is someone else should, right? Mm-hmm. You, know, you see this reflected in the pandemic where all of a sudden we're all familiar with how valuable childcare services are. But if you just, if women just exclude themselves, say, oh, I'm not going to do that kind of work. I'm going to do professional work. You're not actually making any kind of progress. And so we keep bumping up against the same kind of problems. Well, what you just said about caretaking, though, made me think about, you know, the expectations we have of of a female founder because her Uh venture capitalist funders are expecting for her to scale fast as they would of a male founder. But there are these extra expectations on top of that, that she be nurturing of her employees and that she be a caretaker of her employees. And I think like Adam Newman and Rebecca Newman, the founder of WeWork and his wife are such an interesting power couple now disgraced, but like Adam could be the insane genius, right? Right. Cause we tolerate that in a man. We tolerate the insane genius. Right. We say the same thing about Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. Their employees yeah. say like, they really pushed me. You know, it was really hard. We worked around the clock, but like, I really learned a lot. They really pushed me. Mm -hmm. And when we hear from employees of someone like Audrey Gelman or Ty Haney at Outdoor Voices or Glossier, the in-person Glossier staff, we just hear these horror stories. We don't ever hear like, she was a really tough and I learned a lot from her. We hear, you know, she didn't take care of me. So this expectation of caretaking, and it makes me think of Hillary Clinton too, you know, that she was Mm -hmm. called cold right? Like yeah. she wasn't caring enough. So the, the, the double standards we have for women in power are, are quite something to reckon with. This is my sort of experience that in the venture capital world, if you're a woman, you're trying to start a business, that it's hard to get funding if all you want to do is make money, that this expectation comes for the woman that she also has to have altruistic motivations about what she wants her business to do. And I feel like that sets women up to fail immediately, right? Or I guess COA, you know, which you may argue is that's what we have to get the root at is that like these workplaces need to be supportive. These workplaces do need to be doing good. That is how you get real change. But for both of you to respond to, is that what the expectation is women that's to do to succeed in business? If you want to look out across, you know, gender discourse, right? And I think that's a big distinguishing factor to set up when you have conversations like this, because if we're going into the business world and especially, you know, feminist branded businesses, which I used to cover my entire career, it is a branding venture. We're not talking about bell hooks. (laughs) We're talking about people who want to make money and who are driven by business incentives, as you just said, like seed money. Like it's in a lot of ways, an entirely different conversation and metrics than feminist discourse. So I think you should start there. When you pull back, though, a big cornerstone of white feminist ideology and practices is this fundamental idea that you, as a marginalized gender, you know, whether that's woman identified or non-binary, you want to have access and be your husband, your son, your brother, Mm -hmm. to have what they have and to oversee, you know, huge empires in the way that they do. And that that is the mark of your feminism. And I found records of this, you know, in like suffrage era in terms of, you know, these women who are relegated to only the domestic sphere, who are supposed to be ornamental, who, you know, do a fair amount of labor in terms of like the home and childcare, but nevertheless have, you know, staffs of people who do the laundry, who change diapers, who cook meals, you know, that sort of thing. When they see their husband leaving and having this business, right, 
they get access to so many dimensions outside the home, right? Like politics, mm -hmm. education, they get to participate in all these commerce conversations, right? And as again, middle to upper class white suffragettes were having this realization, there was a period in the turn of the century where a lot of those women were starting to have conversations and sit down with working class women. So literally the women who worked in these factories, who worked in these laundries, right? Mm -hmm. And a big dividing factor when they were sitting down and trying to work together over, you know, a cohesive strategy for not just white women's rights or middle class women's rights, but everyone's rights, collective women, that was a big enduring divide in terms of the working class women who were sitting in on these meetings and trying to find common ground were like, oh, okay, so if you want to be your husband and mm. that's your entryway into women's rights, you will be exploiting me. Does that change or hinder at all your interpretation of women's rights? And over the last hundred years, white feminism has said no. <laughs> it doesn't. <Right. laughs> and if I want to be this totally autonomized, you know, financially independent person, I will exploit and underpay the nannies who take care of my children, the women who come in after I leave and clean my office. I will not advocate, you know, for these women to have affordable health care. They're not right. a part of the conversations we have about women's rights or sexual right. harassment. Right. And you see that, you know, with a lot of the companies that Lee raised earlier down through, you know, a lot of other ventures. There is a really clean turning point, I'll point out, though, where like white feminism as a movement and an ideology went explicitly more corporate. At what point was that? I put it at around like the lean in era, you know, where right. You have a big company and it is explicitly corporate, whether we're talking about Sheryl Sandberg or Sophia. And yeah. the word feminism is being used yeah. when you are sitting down to talk about your products or you're sitting down to be profiled. You use that word to either, you know, quantify yourself, your ambitions even. Or I tracked it a lot with, you know, actresses and like singers who, as Lee was saying earlier, five years prior were actively shying away from the term feminist. I had to cover a lot of famous women at that time. And there was this weird tension, you know, circa the Beyonce interview, Jennifer, that you cited, where it was like, I'm not a feminist. I wear a leotard. Like, <laughs> it was like, yeah, very... I mean, it's it's like that <laughs> word. Also, the word <laughs> feminist just sort of like is a reflection of like what the thing that's bugging society about women is in that moment. You know, Yeah. Like... And there was a real shift there in terms of, you know, I'm. A corporate person with corporate ambitions. I'm a small business owner. Yeah. And I identify as a feminist and I'm moving through this space with, you know, those politics. But it's unclear from the outset. Like when you use that word, what are you talking about? Is that code for like you want to own a lot of things? Is it code for like you want to be as sexually active and autonomous as you want to be outside of marriage? Like there's just no touch point. Yeah. Because feminism is such a big tent. Uh, yeah, exactly. Feminism is a big tent, but it's often looked through a very narrow lens, as you pointed out. And I think that may be the problem with some of these girl bosses is that they think they're supposed to represent feminism under the big umbrella with all of its elements. And they may not actually be doing that or even be able to do that. And they feel a lot of pressure to do that and they're not achieving it. And then they get blown up. So after the break, let's talk about where that pressure comes from and if it's fair. That's next with Lee Stein and Koa Beck on Just Something About Her.
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with author and journalist Koa Beck, whose latest book, White Feminism, talks about an individualistic brand of feminism that often comes at the expense of poor women and women of color. And we also have Lee Stein, who's written viral articles about the rise and fall of the girl boss, as well as a satirical novel about girl bosses called self-care. Lee, I want to start with you and try to pick up where we left off. Before the break, Koba identified the moment white feminism went corporate and feminism became intertwined with personal ambition. That model became very attractive to a lot of people because it allowed individuals to feel as if they had control over big systemic issues. But it also became pretty troublesome when some of these successful, quote unquote, feminists ended up doubling down on some of those systemic problems, leading you to write an article last summer called The End of the Girl Boss is Here. So walk us through what led you to write that article. So I wrote this satirical novel about the girl boss uh, that came out last summer, and I was asked to write this piece for Medium about the end of the girl boss, about the real women that were falling one after the other. And my phone was just blowing up. Every time another founder stepped down, everyone would text me like, I should be excited about this. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And it doesn't actually like to be the Cassandra, like it doesn't bring me a lot of joy. Like my novel, as much as it's about the girl boss and white feminism, it's also about social justice activism online and the glee we get from taking down other people. And it's about cancel culture, which is also something I write about. And so in the past year, yeah, I've really wrestled with these questions about what do we get from taking these women down? And I came to realize I'm one of the few writers writing about this topic who was a founder. I ran a nonprofit feminist organization with 40,000 members in a Facebook group. And I organized conferences for 2000 women and gender variant writers in New York City and L.A., The Facebook group was called Binders Full of Women Writers. And I went to my staff and I said, how come all the people for these jobs are are all men? They said, well, these are the people that have the qualifications. And I said, well, gosh, can't we can't we find some some women that are also qualified? Which was a joke on Mitt Romney saying that he had binders full of us. It brought us whole binders full of, uh, of women. I did this for three years. The conferences were truly diverse. We really worked hard on our scholarship program. We gave attendees travel stipends, childcare stipends. We've had some book deals come out of this conference. It was a really exciting and fruitful time for me. And I'm really proud of the organizing that I did. But what ultimately was my downfall was all the drama in the Facebook group. Our second to last conference, which happened one week before we all thought Hillary Clinton would be elected president, 
there was a protest staged against the conference because of our 18 plus attendance policy, which means that we didn't allow babies and children at the conference. And this was extremely controversial. I was desperate to reach consensus. I wanted to do the feminist thing. I wanted to do the right thing. And I don't have children. I surveyed parents. I surveyed child-free people. There was no consensus. It was totally divisive. And so a protest was staged against us. And activists used our trending hashtag on Twitter to bring us down and to bring shame to our conference. And I just remember thinking, like, why are you protesting me? I make no money. Like, I'm not some huge corporation. I put together a whole task force to work on this problem and to come up with a better solution for the following conference. No one would volunteer for the task force. No one actually wanted to work towards a solution. They just wanted the public shaming and to drag us down. And that really burned me out. I resigned and I wrote a satirical novel about all of this. <laughs> so I've been in Audrey Gelman's shoes, except I didn't make millions of dollars. I was broke. So I have these mixed, complicated feelings because I do too. if yes. we want success politically, we have to build a big tent and we have to build coalitions and we have to bring different groups together under something universal, like universal healthcare, universal childcare would be nice. But what are we doing that we're canceling our own, that we're pointing fingers and saying, you're not doing feminism correctly when we can't even all agree on what it would be to do feminism correctly. So I'm kind of disappointed and cynical about what has happened to the current feminist movement. I'm a pretty empathetic and sympathetic person. So, you know, I look at the situation with some of these women founders and imagine why did you yeah. get yourself in that situation where you promised something you, knew you could never deliver? I don't know. Personally, I think Audrey Gelman tried to be an intersectional feminist. Mm -hmm. Did she succeed? No, she was held to account, but I think she tried. I don't think it was put on. And Koa mm -hmm. might disagree with me. Right. I would argue that is the nature of business, <laughs> especially <It's> startup <laughs> business. You promise things you can't deliver in terms of scale. Like that is the unconscious, maybe not so intentional agreement you make when you cross that threshold and you do have a board who, you know, mm -hmm. sits in front of you and measures right. out, you know, how much money you've made. And, you know, again, I think this is why it's important to have some sort of distinguishing factors between like business expectations and then, you know, feminist politics and ethics. Agreed. Because right. there is a very specific place where they do not intersect. Right. I don't ask the question, why did you promise something you can't deliver to like hold these women accountable. <laughs> I ask that to understand why this problem keeps happening. You know, either we don't expect men to reach the same bars as we expect a woman-run business to reach. That's unfair. But then the other piece of this is women who want to be feminist, women who want to not just make money, but actually do good in the world you know, really what they're dealing with is the tensions of capitalism as, you know, as Coa writes about. Like just to lay out where I'm coming from, that's what I see is happening to these women. You know, for women in particular, the promise that you can't deliver, you're going to fall fast and hard in a way that a man's not. We're going to be looking for that the way we don't for men. Mm -hmm. May I add something that yeah. I think is pertinent to this layout? Yeah. I think that in terms of you know, individuals being taken to task, like especially like founders or yep. presidents or, you know, just like Twitter swarms. Um, <laughs> course corrections for white feminism, I find are much more effective in terms of orienting yourself against systems rather than individuals. Yeah. You know, whether we're talking about 
like racist campaigns or classist campaigns or, you know, through Me Too as well, right? Like if you look at, say, like that movement, yes, there is pertinence in removing Harvey Weinstein, right? Or any, you know, particular powerful person who is preying on people, male, female, or, you know, non-binary, gender variant or otherwise, removing somebody who is denigrating others, who is harassing others, who is, you know, making it very impossible for them to go to work and feel safe. But again, some of the best reporting I find that came out of Me Too, more earlier Me Too, was the reporting that detailed the just like layers and complex systems that facilitated this person. And when you look at Mm -hmm. cultures, companies, institutions, organizations, if you remove that one person, the culture and the systems that are present in that company will facilitate another version of that person who, you know, may be better coded in their racist language or might, you know, sexually harass people in more secretive ways with bigger NDAs and then more, you know, concrete threats or have like a better legal team or what have you. And so I don't find like in terms of feminist politics or social justice, like fixating on an individual to be helpful. But also, I think if you flip it the other way, it indicates a much broader sort of like bait and switch of what people are asking for. I get into a lot of detail in my book about how sort of misleading and obtuse, you know, a lot of these press releases I always had to pour over about like, you know, we've hired our first female president and it's 2015. (laughs) I know, I know. (laughs) And like, it goes both ways in terms of like yeah. larding, you know, these companies with praise for doing like the most basic thing and then revealing, you know, their own classist hiring practices, their own deeply racist culture that they only have like one Latina running, you know, a publication in like 2017, you know, right. that this one magazine has a cover that was shot by the first black photographer. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) In like, you know, the late 2018, 2019. So I think that whole narrative of like the individual person either saving or decimating, you know, an entire structure organization is flawed. That's really well said, Koa. And I would just add that the other thing that's happening in the background of all this is an extreme distrust of politicians and of authority. I feel like as a culture, we have very few figures that we look up to and we're like, oh, like someone's in charge of this stuff. And so we've started looking to corporations as our leaders. And so we're expecting a lot of change and we're expecting a lot of progress from corporate America. And so I'm, this is another thing I'm really cynical about. It's like, I don't want to see Netflix tweet about Black Lives Matter. Like I want Netflix to pay corporate income taxes. You know what I mean? Like, so I'm like an Elizabeth Warren on this front. Like let's inject that money like back into America so that we can have support systems coming from the government rather than relying on Amazon to raise their wage and pay healthcare, you know? So the amount of attention and, and priority that we give to corporations to solve issues of social equality, I find to be a little disproportionate. And women in businesses are usually expected to do that first. Mm-hmm. So Lee, you mentioned you wrote this piece last summer about the end of the girl boss, and then you followed it up this summer with another piece called Sympathy for the Girl Boss. Tell us how you got from one to the other. So I wrote a piece for a vertical of medium.com last summer called The End of the Girl Boss that went viral. It was one of the top 10 highest performing stories of 2020. 
and it inspired a lot of copycat pieces about the girl boss. Every week I get another link to a new story about the girl boss. And it's basically like these girl bosses, why do they keep girl bossing girl bossily? It's just the same story over and over again. So my editor originally asked me to do like a, where are they now? And to like track down these female founders that had resigned or been fired from their companies and see what they were up to. Like Sophia Amoruso, for example, you know, is no longer with Nasty Gal, but she's selling business courses directly to her audience in the same way Marie Forleo does. Leandra Medine Cohen, formerly of Man Repeller, which was a style and fashion blog. She closed the whole thing down and she went back to just style blogging on a Substack, which like, this is what she's good at. So is it a huge surprise that these women are just like returning to what they can do for their audience instead of scaling and growing? You know, at first I was excited because some of these founders had reached out to me. And so I had connection to them. So I was like, great, I'm going to write a piece and I'm going to get all these exclusive interviews. No, they wouldn't go on the record. And it's because of the public shamings they endured. So that became part of the story. And so I'm also zooming out to ask, you know, who benefits from these online campaigns? Because really it's big tech that benefits from our engagement and these kinds of stories that trigger our outrage, our disappointment, our rage, we tell ourselves that it's because we're, we care about social justice, but it, it almost becomes like a yeah. reality TV show to me that we're all participating in during the pandemic when we're at home and we need entertainment. I feel like that's what it became. Did any of the women, you know, you can say this without disclosing, did they say that they felt like they got caught in a vice of having to uh, do good and make money? Or, you know, do they describe like what that tension was, was like? The most interesting insight that I had from these conversations is, and I'd love to hear Koa's take on this, it's white women's anxiety that they will be caught. And so they have to direct that anxiety at a scapegoat so that no one will see that they're complicit. So I feel like it's a lot of white women taking down other white women to show that they're the good one and that they would never do what the bad one did. I do have an opinion on that. I think a real worthwhile dimension based on what Lee said, but also, you know, in terms of campaigns and social media presence to get into is performativity, like situating yourself hypothetically as caring about social justice or feminism or racial literacy or queer rights developed a very specific cachet that I quantify in my book. And, you know, whether we're talking about, like Lee said earlier, like Netflix, you know, that's trying to cash in on that or like, you know, people as brands, like hypothetically, anyone on Twitter could be a brand if like you, you know, expand the definition. And like, if you, you know, pop off, say like four tweets about like how, you know, simplistically quote unquote bad, like white women are, you know, some brand like the cut will be in your DMs being like, Hey, you want to write about that? (laughs) Yes. I don't think that, you know, wholly necessarily takes away from you know, some really incredible movements that have happened on social media, but it's a very real dimension that I think belongs in this conversation Mm -hmm. that has to do a lot with, you know, capitalism and branding and, you know, white feminism, whether it's talking about what Lee just said, like trying to distance yourself from something without, you know, a real deep comprehension of what we're even talking about. So if it's not, you know, the girl boss thing, then it'll be something else the next day. And, you know, talk about having a brand. (laughs) Yeah, I just wanted to say something about branding because the rise of the girl boss coincides with the rise of personal branding. And this was the advice I was getting when I was running a feminist nonprofit 
you know, I was getting all this advice about my personal brand and how I should go speak at all these women's empowerment conferences. But I was like, what am I supposed to be talking about? And they're like, but talk about yourself. Like you're as a founder. And I'm like, what's my point? Like it was all very hollow and empty. And I thought, I don't want to brand. Like I want to write books. Like my brand is I'm a writer. I want to do something. So I have observed that there's been this like flip-flop where people become brands. So we treat people like corporations and we say like, where is your statement? When are you going to put out your statement? (laughs) And then we treat corporations like people. And we look to corporations and we say, well, what do you believe? What does Nike believe? What is Nike going to stand for? So we have our wires crossed when it comes to brands in a really interesting way that speaks to this moment. All right, that's a great time to take a break. After the break, we're going to talk about accountability and what that means for these girl bosses who have been canceled or left the companies they founded. That's next on Just Something About Her with Koa Beck and Lee Stein. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And we're back to Just Something About Her with our guests, Koa Beck and Lee Stein. Koa is the author of a book called White Feminism. And Lee Stein is an author of five books and a writer known for documenting the rise and fall of the girl boss. Lee, in your most recent piece, Sympathy for the Girl Boss, you write about accountability. You write the quote unquote accountability we claim to want from white girl bosses looks an awful lot like trashing, dressed up like social justice activism. Koa, you've also said that when we, quote unquote, take down these girl bosses, the important conversations about racial justice and pay equity often fall by the wayside. So what are the conversations we should be having? What do you see as a more productive solution to the trashing we're seeing now? Right. More productive would be an opportunity to try again and do better. I think Ty Haney is an interesting example because she got pushed out of Outdoor Voices, the athleisure wear company that she founded and she was in charge of. There was a BuzzFeed expose about her. And then the the founder of Lunia Sleepwear, whose name I don't remember, got in touch with her and said, how can I help? And they worked together to get Ty Haney back at her own company. And so we get to watch to see if she learned something. I mean, a lot of these women that we call girl bosses, they were in their late 20s, early 30s when they started their companies. Do we just want them to be over? Like, that's what I don't see. I don't really see like a path for making a comeback, a path for making amends. Audrey Gelman posted a huge apology and a big statement in October of 2020 that she owned up to a lot. She talked about the work she was doing to be better. I felt like she was really addressing her critics. I felt like she was trying to, and she got dragged. So where is the path for improving? Because if we just say that, I don't know, that it's just a problem of white women, I can't change that I'm a white woman. That's just, you know, I can't change that, but I can change my behavior. I can learn, I can do better. So it's just become a cliche now to say do better, but we don't actually um, allow anyone the opportunity to do better. So what do you think about the women having second chances, learning from this? I don't think broadly collective women's rights and the rights of marginalized genders 
should be framed around solely women business founders. I get into a lot of detail about this in my book in terms of like media narratives and how a lot of the ascent of the narrative of girl boss was used in a lot of mainstream media as well as women's media that I worked with to be a representation of women's rights and how a lot of publications use those narratives to talk about abortion, birth control, healthcare. And, you know, obviously if you're starting with somebody who has a certain standard of living, right, and can aspire to certain things, and you're anchoring all understanding of gender and gender oppression and feminism from that lens, that's going to be a white feminist lens for sure. So when, you know, you're having conversations with your friends or you're trying to read, you know, these many girl boss pieces, you know, whether we're talking about like a collective forgiveness or, you know, any sort of critique, I think it's wise to consistently bring yourself back to a basic standard of living. Most marginalized genders in this country aren't looking to run, you know, very lofty businesses that make a lot of money. But white feminism, you know, in an effort to see them and acknowledge these people, asks that they aspire to that, to be seen. So, you know, a domestic worker who doesn't really make much money, she can obviously find her way to white feminism if she wants to start a newsletter, if she wants to start a business in which she, you know, also hires a lot of nannies and has like, you know, some sort of business right. cleaning empire. But if she just wants to be a nanny who makes a certain standard of living and has healthcare and has really decent childcare for her own kids or, you know, any sort of support for her special needs child mm -hmm. or her aging mother, white feminism from now to hundred years ago has never seen her. In my entire 10 years in women's media, I never went to a branded women's conference where one of the options was like, how to make sure that your nanny has healthcare. And I went to all of them because <laughs> I had yeah. to for my job. So I think that's another place where a lot of this can be expanded and like rethought. I see this being like a fixation of media and especially very like in some ways traditional media that has been struggling for a long time <laughs> and just needs to chase whatever the trend is. Yeah. But also, you know, I, I think that when discussing cancel culture specifically, I see a lot of different things there, much like feminism, right? You say cancel culture and there's so many different pieces that operate under that. Like some of it is like harassment and death threats. And some of it, you know, is consumer activism. The capitalist framework is such that, you know, if you make a product and you have a political platform that I don't agree with, I cannot buy it and I can erect an entire political campaign around like, I'm not buying it. And here are the other people who are not buying right. it. And that is a very historically feminist practice, especially, you know, working class feminisms, a lot of feminisms that have been led by immigrant women, women of color. I also think that in terms of women and non-binary rights broadly, and again, rights, you know, not like lofty careers, but rights, I'm really not spending that much time worrying about like the girl boss, you know, sort of narrative. So I want to end by asking where we take this conversation from here. Lee, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, inevitably, we come back to the question, well, what can I do? And so I try to follow the mantra of Arthur Ashe, which is start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. And so I try to make decisions for my own small business that I run. 
that I give a leg up to other people who don't have access to the publishing industry. I do pro bono work. I do sliding scale work. And that's what little I can do myself. Mm-hmm. But in, in some way, I followed the pattern of a lot of these for-profit girl bosses because I have retreated from my collective organizing work. I lasted three years, just like Audrey Gelman lasted three years. And now I'm running a small business because I, I don't want to operate at that scale anymore. I, I couldn't sustain it. And I have admiration for activists and organizers, you know, Winona LaDuke, like they've been, been in it for decades doing the work. It is difficult work. I also would like to add per what Lee said, I think that only because I addressed this so specifically, but I think for a lot of people who are listening to this, it's really important for them to hear that the whole question of what can I do? That's a very white feminist framing. Oh, what's a better question? What do you wish people were asking? I do wish that the question wasn't so individually focused. So instead of saying like, what can I do? You know, what can my workplace do? You know, what can my entire neighborhood do? What can the other parents in my kids, you know, very elite private school do? Right. Just thinking in more in terms of the collective, Mm -hmm. because the thing is like, that's where white feminism begins and ends, right? You should be the individual change maker for all systemic oppression that has ever happened, which doesn't really work. You know, a lot of, you know, whether we're talking about politicians or business owners, they will move into a constellation of power. It's not just them. And again, that feeds once again into that whole like press release thing of like, look, you know, we have finished what other people started. We have a trans woman who runs this department. We're done. (laughs) And again, it's those systems that she will have to navigate and that she will have to interact with and compromise and then sit and have to, you know, lobby and like work with unions to like get certain representation for certain things. Like this will be very long and arduous, but also it's, it's just not really reflective of the scope of power and how it works. What they are able to achieve is proportionate to that system. Ladies, thank you so much. Like, I learned a lot, so I think people are going to learn a lot of this. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And it was very nice to meet you, Lee. Sarah, are you there? I'm here. What'd you think? I mean, just like a lot. Yeah, complicated. Super complicated. And you don't want to let women off for bad behavior. You also, right? you know, this is like super hard. Obviously, I want people to bring altruistic values to business. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you have to understand these are businesses. These are for-profit ventures. And to not promise that that workplace is going to be a utopia that is never achievable, right? That's like setting yourself up to fail. Cohen makes that distinction where she's like, there's a very specific place where like gender discourse and business do not intersect. And so there has to be some sort of distinction between those two when we're having these conversations. Yeah, there's just a sort of this assumption that when you hear about a woman-owned business, you're waiting to hear about the part where she does good in the world because that's still our expectation for Mm -hmm. women. My biggest takeaway from the conversation, at least, was that like we can't put all the onus or all the praise on one person because that's just like counterproductive to these larger conversations about like the state of equality for women. So like I thought it was so important to think, you know, these individuals that were quote unquote holding accountable are part of larger power structures. They operate within those power structures. So like to not focus too much on the individual. Yeah. And that, you know, I think 
Koa writes and speaks particularly well about this sanitizing feminism, Mm -hmm. right? Further expanding on the point that you just made is that if you're not challenging the power structures, you just get like a pretty white woman in a pink suit running a company doing the same thing that men in power had done, but with the extra expectations that comes for a woman. And so it's like not surprising to see it kind of crumble underneath so many women, given like that it's set up on a structure that like wasn't built for them. Yeah, definitely. I also think there's an important distinction to make that like we should encourage women Mm -hmm. to start their own companies and take on these huge responsibilities because men are doing it anyway. We just also have to remember that it's not all on them. Well, it's just one measure of progress, right? Right. Another thing that I thought was really important that COA in particular talked about is caretaking. You know, we definitely do not value women's work as much as men. Right. And Women going into the workplace and offloading household work um, and caretaking to someone who is not well paid is compounding the problem, right? Mm -hmm. Her book, it was so interesting. It It made me think of just like, is this the original sin? Which is that it started in like the 1900s when suffragettes were fighting for access to the workplace and they had experienced, you know, doing all the domestic labor. But when they wanted to ascend to power within the workplace and leave that sort of work behind to other women. They knew how hard it was and they didn't put value on it. Exactly. They knew how hard it was. They didn't put value on it. They didn't fight for, you know, pay or reverence or any sort of respect for that sort of work. You Mm -hmm. know, I thought it was super interesting when Koa was like, I've never been to a conference where it's like how to be a businesswoman who also pays their nanny well (laughs) or how to make sure that your nanny has health care. You know what it is? The Domestic Workers Alliance. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's true. That is where you get that kind of advice. Mm -hmm. But by the way, not that it should be all on the woman, right? Right. And then I thought it was a nice way to end, but also complex in itself is to try to think about not what I can do, but what we can do. That kind of takeaway, Sari comes up with like almost everyone we speak to. Yeah, right? I was just thinking, I was like, <laughs> I feel like I've said this before. <laughs> the hard part now, like the slog of making real change is like not expecting there to be some, a big action you can take that's going to, you know, revolutionize things overnight, but making a change in your own life, in your own community is how you actually get sustained change. All right. Awesome. Well, I'm glad we did that. And I think it was yeah. really interesting. Um, yeah, me too. We've been wanting to do it for a while. So good stuff. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount. Thank you to Koa Beck and Lee Stein for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer.